Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Each Christmas season, I seek to do a, a Christmas series that really capitalizes on where people are thinking at this time of year and looking at the birth of Christ and looking this year at uh, Matthew chapter 1 that really emphasizes family. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew 1, first book of the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the first section of this. We're going to be looking at the text a little bit differently this morning because it's a genealogy. And so we're going to work our way through this, and I think there's value that we can learn. If you're using the Bibles in, your, in front of you and the chairs there, it's on page 679, and I encourage you to have your Bibles open because we will be going back and forth in this passage. But it is a passage that speaks of the genealogy of Christ. Have you ever given much thought to your genealogy? You know, around the holiday time, sometimes we contemplate maybe become preoccupied with the intricacies of family connections. Uh, sometimes that happens more at this time than other times of year. And uh, I, I've personally never been that motivated to trace genealogy. I know some people really enjoy that and dig into that, and there are websites for that. I just, that hasn't been one of my uh, real interests. I know my paternal grandfather came over from England and my paternal grandmother came from Germany and I know my maternal side of the family there are connections to Scotland and beyond that I pretty much don't know and yet some people uh, are very interested in that I, I you know I I find the stories that I know about our family to be interesting because they're family but not because people are famous now, on the other side, on my wife's side of the family, there are some people that I would have liked to have met. For instance, her great uncle on her father's mother's side was Will Cobb. He was a candy maker from Newark, New Jersey. And each Christmas evening, after opening their presents at home and then seeing other family in the evening, they would go to Aunt Jane's and Uncle Will's house. My wife, my wife remembers there was a lot of candy there because her great uncle was a candy maker. In fact, her father had worked for him, and at one point, Will Cobb wanted to turn the business over to my father-in-law. Uh, now, you probably don't recognize his name, but most of us have appreciated the work that he did and what he came up with because he is the candy maker who invented the candy apple. And so while you may not recognize his name, you may have enjoyed his work. He produced the first batch in 1908, initially coating apples with this uh, candy, this cinnamon candy, in a way to display them. It was really not so much for the apple, but it was to display the candy. Well, somebody came by the window, saw the display, and said, that looks good enough to eat. And they bought the entire display. And he realized this may be a great way to sell these. And so it became very popular on the New Jersey shore. It spread from there. It became popular in circuses. And most of us have had them, even if you don't enjoy 
the crunchy sugar coating on a crispy apple. You've probably seen the trend displayed by the color that originated from that, the candy apple red color. And it shows up in vehicles, in sports cars, in nail polish, in lipstick, all of this candy apple red. And you can thank my my wife's great uncle for that. Like it or hate it, that's the family line. Now for, for me, family history tends to be more of a novelty, but for the first century Jews, knowing ancestry was much more than just an interesting sideline or hobby. It was central to so much of Jewish life. In fact, Matthew's gospel begins as none of the other gospels do. He begins with a genealogy. And and in doing so, he mentions several people that we probably would not want to highlight if they were in our lineage. And what I want us to consider this morning is there are really some knots in this family tree. This is not a a straight tree. You know, one one of the things they tell you in writing and in creative writing is you need to begin with an interesting story or something that will will pull the readers in. Listing names that we don't recognize and struggle to pronounce is not the best way to do that. This is probably not our idea of how to interest people in a gospel, and especially the first one in the New Testament. And yet this is where the Holy Spirit directs our attention. Matthew's gospel is written for a Jewish audience. And it's written with the purpose of declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And this genealogy is the word of God, and I trust that it will will cause us to have a spiritual curiosity to find out why is this there, because all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Now, some is more profitable than others to where we're living, but this has a purpose. And I want us to consider it this morning because what I want us to see is that the genealogy of Jesus Christ displays God's absolute control and his amazing grace. When you understand just some of what is listed in this genealogy, you find that God's control and grace are brought to the forefront. If you have your Bibles open, look at the first verse with me. And as I said, we're going to approach this a little bit differently, but I want us to look at the first verse as we begin. It begins, the book of the genealogy or the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this verse emphasizes and summarizes what is to follow. It really brings out the key aspects of the information that the Jews would want to know. And again, understanding Mark is, or Matthew is writing to the Jews. Mark writes to the Romans. Luke writes to the Greeks and presents Jesus as the Son of Man. And, and John writes to the world. So each one has a particular audience and emphasizes things to bring that forward. So in the four Gospels, we get the full picture of who Jesus is and the presentation of who he was on earth. But in this verse, it connects Jesus to David and to Abraham. Okay, so why why do genealogies matter to the Jews? Well, there are several reasons, and I think it's helpful for just background for us to understand this. First of all, the, the ancestry matters because Jewish ancestry was important to family inheritance. 
When Israel went into the promised land, and the promise that God gave to Abraham is that he would give them a land, that land was divided based on what tribe they were from. It was tied to their family lineage. So to claim property, it was based on your tribe in the, the promised land. And it was divided accordingly. So to have an inheritance or to transfer property from a person, you had to show the validity of their ancestry. It was more than just a financial check to sell property. There had to be a family connection. And we find this played out in the, in the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth provides the example of what is the family lineage and how does this property then get transferred. Another reason is that Jewish ancestry was the basis for Roman taxation. That is part of, that's one of the key elements of the Christmas story. That Mary and Joseph are going to Bethlehem. Why? I mean, why take a trip with a woman who was great with child? It was because of a required census. And the purpose of that census was for taxation. And we read this in Luke chapter 2, verse 4. It says the trip was necessary because the Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. And so the ancestry mattered. Joseph didn't choose to go to Bethlehem to fulfill Bible prophecy. He went because of governmental bureaucracy. And the Holy Spirit used that. It was God's plan to fulfill that prophecy. But their, taxation, their tax assessment was based on their ancestry. A third reason is Jewish ancestry was necessary to establish claims to the priesthood. To be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And you had to be able to prove it. In fact, in Ezra chapter 2, verses 61 through 63, there's a list of households and their names are listed because they are disqualified from the priesthood because they could not verify their genealogy. So even though they may have been serving, when they started looking at the records, there was no proof that these people were of the lineage of Levi, therefore they could not be priests. And it could have been a significant number of people because the verses just above that, the household names covered about 600 people. And then another reason is the Jewish ancestry was required to validate the claim to the throne. Jesus had to be, the, for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to come from the line of King David. So Matthew begins by mentioning David before he mentions Abraham. And that's what we find in verse 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, because it had to come through the Davidic line. In fact, we have two different genealogies. We have the one here in, in Matthew. We have another one in Luke's gospel, uh, verse, chapter 3, verses 23 through 28, and, and there are some differences. And it's interesting because Matthew's gospel begins in the past and moves forward. Luke's genealogy begins in the present with Jesus and moves backward, and, and Luke goes all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God. And the reason for that is, again, Luke is writing to the Greeks, presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. And so he ties him, Jesus, back to all of humanity in Adam. And so recognizing this, but, but Matthew's purpose was to establish the, the Messianic line. And that's really what the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel do. And what's interesting, if you know Jewish history, you know that in, in 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. And with the destruction of the temple came a destruction of all the records. 
And so the only man alive today who can trace his lineage back to David is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because we have the record here in Matthew and in Luke. We have it in two Gospels that, that Jesus' claim to sit on the throne of David is established. Okay, well, that, that's interesting for history. What does that mean to us today, 2,000 years after the birth of Christ? And I think what we'll find in this passage is there are several things that can help us. Number one is that God's providential control triumphs over the difficulties in the lineage of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that in this passage. And, and the structure of the text is really provided at the end of this first section. In verse 17, it provides the structure and the organization for the passage. This is not a systematic or, exa or, or exhaustive aspect. It, it, it is a systematic one. It's not a comprehensive lineage. There are names that are left out. In fact, there are names left out that we would want to put in, and some of these names we would want to leave out. But these are here for a purpose. If you have your Bibles open, look down at verse 16. Verse 16 says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. What we find here is the systematic layout of this passage that takes us from the patriarch Abraham to King David. This is really the pinnacle of the kingship. From King David to the Babylonian captivity, now we're going down. And, and we see the, the degradation, and we're going to look at some of that in some of these individuals. They go into the, the depth at that point. And then from the Babylonian captivity to the coming of Christ. And, and the, the, the term Christ is, is not Jesus' surname. It's speaking of Jesus is the Messiah. And so you find that laid out through this passage. The Jesus Christ, the genealogy or the generations of Jesus the Messiah is what verse 1 says. We find that again here in, in verse 16. Jesus who is called Christ. And then the, the Christ, the Messiah, these 14 generations. And, and so understanding that, and I'm trying to give you some of the structure because there are other passages of genealogies in the Bible, and, and if you're like me, I, I tend to read very quickly over that. But when you read those, one of the things I would encourage you to do is look for changes in the pattern. Most of these have a, a pretty consistent pattern. Look for where there's changes where there are deviations from the norm of the structure because those departures are clues that there's something there that we need to look at. So now go back to verse 1, and we're going to look at the first six verses. Matthew 1, beginning in, in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Ashan, and Ashan begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. We'll stop our reading there in the middle of this verse. 
because it gives us that first group, the structure that we see in this first group. And understanding that there are several things that we can learn from, from this. The first thing I want us to see is that Christ's lineage fulfills Bible prophecy. And understanding that, that the, the triumph over the difficulties was a fulfillment of what God said would happen. There are a number of prophecies that as we come to the New Testament, we realize, okay, that's what that verse was talking about. And we're seeing it expanded. For instance, one of the prophecies was that the Messiah would be born of a woman. That was the, what we call the first gospel, the, the first evangelistic statement in Genesis 3.15. The judgment that was stated to the serpent when God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, it was a statement that the, the hope, the help that would come to mankind would be the seed of woman. And so in verse 16 of Matthew 1, we see her husband, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus. A second thing that we see is the Messiah would be of the seed of Abraham. And in, in, in Genesis chapter 12, it says that, that I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so then in, verse 20, in chapter 22, verse 18, it says, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And the blessing that would come through the lineage of Abraham because of the Messiah. And so verse 2 of this chapter says, Abraham begot Isaac and takes us all the way then to Christ. The third thing that we see is that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. And we find that in Genesis chapter 49, and that chapter is actually within the, the narrative of Joseph, and in some ways it almost seems out of place. If you're just reading Genesis, it's like, well, why is this story here? It's not a real nice story. And, and it seems to kind of break up the flow of, of, of reading about Joseph. Now we find out in Matthew's gospel why that was so important. It says the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, verse 10, this was actually a verse I had to memorize in Hebrew history many years ago. And I remember memorizing it and thinking, why, why this verse? And I'm sure the teacher must have explained it, but I didn't connect it. I kept thinking of all the verses that we could be memorizing, why this one? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and he shall be the obedience of the people. And, and I remember memorizing that and wondering, okay, I just don't get this. And, and the, the teacher was Dr. Jesse Boyd. He wasn't the kind that you wanted to ask questions that he would think were not real intelligent questions. And so I just never asked, but I just, I couldn't quite understand. Well, recognize what we find here in Matthew's gospel is this statement that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. The scepter was a symbol of royal power, the right to reign. And while there's debate over the meaning of the, the, of the word Shiloh, in the light of the, pronunci the pronouns that are used within the context, it seems best to understand it as referring to the coming of the Messiah. And it may be fulfilled, the fulfillment being in the triumphal entry of Jesus. 
But we find the emphasis in this passage that Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And that statement of Tamar is a change in the normal flow, and we'll look at that in a few, few moments. But recognizing this is another aspect of prophecy that would then be fulfilled. And the fourth thing is the Messiah would be of the family of David. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it says, And when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so verse 6 says, And Jesse begot David the king. Now, there are two genealogies, as I've mentioned, one in, in Matthew's gospel, one in Luke's gospel. And, and they're not the same, and there's lots of under, discussion as to this, but my understanding is what we find is that in Matthew's gospel, he's, he's, we find the genealogy being traced through the parental side, the, the father's side, where Luke seems to be presenting it from the mother's side, that both Joseph and Mary were of David's lineage. And, and you see the, the d differences in that when it starts talking about the, the offspring of David. And we find the difference in Luke chapter 3, verse 31, the son of, of David. And, and I say that because the legal right to the throne comes from the father. Matthew provides that. The royal blood, being of the house of David, Jesus got through his mother. Well, why does that math matter? Because one of the easiest ways that the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees could have discredited the claims that Jesus might be the Messiah would be if they could prove that he was not of the line of David. And you have to be sure that they check that out. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard. And, and that would be something that the ruling elite would not try to hide. If they could prove he's not the Messiah because not, he's not in the Davidic line. He doesn't come from the lineage of David. He can't be the Messiah. I mean, end of story. Every Jew would get that. They never did that. They couldn't. In fact, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, riding on the, the donkey, the shout was, Hosanna to the son of David. He's in the lineage of David. And so the two great covenants for, for the Jews, the, the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant, are fulfilled in the Messiah. And that's what we see. But I want us to see, secondly, then, that Christ's lineage triumphs over wicked individuals. And understanding, as I said, there are people in this lineage that we really would not want to name. Look back at verse 6 with me. We'll, be, we'll begin where we, we ended, the second part of Matthew 1, verse 6. It says, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amnon, Amnon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. Now again, we're seeing names. This is kind of where we've gone from the pinnacle, the, the rule of David, and now we're seeing that digression. 
and ending in this section then with the Babylonian captivity. And a lot of names that we're not familiar with, and even if we recognize some of these, the next section has more that we're not familiar with. I really thought I should just ask Eric Payne to come and read the entire text for us because he does such a good job on those types of things. But understanding these are not all nice people, the in- interesting that it names Manasseh in verse 10. Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings in their history. In fact, in 2 Kings 21, it recounts his wicked reign. It includes things like child sacrifice of his own son, delving into demonic things, idol worship, the murder of many innocent people, and and much more wickedness. Manasseh led Israel to commit sins that even the pagan nations that God drove out hadn't been involved in. I mean, he was a horrible character. And he would be one that I'd say, yeah, let's not include him. In fact, Jesus said he would bring such disaster against Jerusalem because of Manasseh that anybody who heard it, their ears would ring. They would tingle because of the horror that was going to come because of this man. He contributed to the, the downward slide that led to captivity. And if that's not bad enough, then in verse 11 we read of Jeconiah. He has a couple of names in the Old Testament. He's he's referred to as Coniah or Jehoiachin, but it's the same individual. Jeconiah was born right around the time of the Babylonian captivity, and he too was a very evil man. In fact, it says in Jeremiah 22, beginning in verse 18, it says "When, when he dies, people won't mourn him. There will be no sorrow at his death. His burial will be like burying, getting rid of a dead animal. In fact, it said that his body would be dragged out of the city like dragging a donkey and just tossing it into the dump. That's how God described the death of Jeconiah. In fact, God said that he would turn him over to the people that he feared who wanted to kill him because of his wickedness. And, and I give you that background because this is an important verse. In Jeremiah 22, verse 30, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This man will be like he had no children. Now, he did have children. But they're not going to prosper, and they're not going to sit on the throne of David. Now, that's a pretty significant judgment, but here's the problem. If, if Jeconiah's offspring cannot sit on the throne of David, but the Messiah has to come through that Davidic line which runs through Jeconiah, how do we end up with the Messiah? How can Jesus be the Messiah if the line of Jeconiah is cursed? Or how can he sit on the throne of David if he doesn't come through that royal line? I mean, that's a hopeless dilemma from a human perspective. But it's solved in the virgin birth. And that is what, again, we see God's working. That Christ can triumph over wicked individuals. That through Joseph, the line of Jeconiah, Jesus receives a legal right to the throne of David but there's not a drop of Jeconiah's blood or DNA in his body. You know, DNA 
is, is used for tracing, and we find more and more about that now. What, what they're able to do today is amazing. In fact, I don't know if you saw in the news just this last week, the authorities released the identity of a boy whose body was found 65 years ago. He was a young boy they had never been able to identify. His body was found in, in Pennsylvania, and he was referred to as the boy in the box. Or he was known as America's unknown child. In fact, his, his gravestone said, an unknown boy. And it was a, a major story. They've just found out who it was. And they released his name this week. And they did it through DNA. They were able to trace back. Well, Jesus was born of a virgin and none of Jeconiah's DNA was in his body. And so the curse that came upon Jeconiah did not prevent the Messiah from being of the house and lineage of David. God worked so that the legal claim to the throne was valid and yet fulfilled his judgment against Jeconiah. And the bloodline of King David came through Mary's side. And so we read at the end of chapter 21 here, in verse 22 it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. This is the control of God. And folks, I, I share this with us because I think it's important that we don't lose sight of the fact that God is in control. History really is his story, and that includes your history, your life, you know, just having a good family lineage does not guarantee that you will make wise choices. We see that in this lineage. But God can handle the difficulties of life, even what seems humanly impossible, like with the story of Jeconiah. And he includes people that we would exclude because that's part of God's plan that Christ would be identified with sinners. God had a plan. God has a plan for your life. So what is it that frustrates you? Your family background? Or maybe more of the family that's in the foreground? It doesn't frustrate God. He has a plan, a desire for you to fulfill the works that He prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God uses people and events that frankly we wouldn't use and we wouldn't want. So do you question God's ability to handle sinful people look at the lineage of David the second thing I want us to see though is that God's abundant grace receives sinners in Christ's lineage as I mentioned this is a selective and official lineage rather than comprehensive and exhaustive well if we're going to be selective I don't think we would have picked these people there are people that were left out that are good people there were good kings. And there are some that are included that are less desirable. And normally, if you're seeing a selective ancestry, the less desirable ones are the ones left out. And the more desirable ones are the ones brought to the forefront. Or if you're going to include the less desirable, you kind of wordsmith it. You know, how do we say this in such a way that, okay, it's there, but it doesn't really give the full picture. It's, I heard of a man who was writing a book about his descendants, and he hired somebody to do all the research, and, and the person came back and said, look, when I was probing into your family, I found out you had a relative 
And he was one of the first people to be executed in the electric chair while incarcerated at the state penitentiary. The man said, well, I don't know that I really want to highlight that, but I don't want to lie. And, and so when the book came out, it said, uh, well, spending many years of his life at one of the country's most famous institutions, he met with a sudden death when involved with groundbreaking work in the area of electricity. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's true, but isn't that how we like to do it? How can I twist this so that it sounds really good? And, I, and I'm not sure that's true, but that really does sure show human nature is to minimize that which doesn't reflect well on us. Christ's lineage does not do that. Christ's lineage highlights sinners that others would ignore. And that's what I want us to understand in this passage. That Christ's lineage highlights these that we would ignore. In Jewish writings, it was not unusual, uncommon. It wasn't normal, but it wasn't uncommon to highlight various women. And, and normally that wouldn't be the case in a genealogy. But often when talking about Israel's history, there are four women that are mentioned quite often. Uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. None of those are named here. The women that are named here are probably all Gentiles. And three of the four have questionable moral reputations. And, and so understanding what God is doing in recording this, Judah's line came by Tamar, we read back in verse 3. Well, Tamar's story is not a real nice story. We find her in Genesis 38. And most of it seems almost out of place, as I mentioned, in the, the context of Joseph's story. But, but Tamar was the, the wife of Judah's son, Ur. Ur was a wicked man, and God killed him. And according to the custom of that day, if, if a, a man died, if the oldest child died without a, an heir, then the next son would marry that widow and raise up that seed. And so the next son, Onan married Tamar, but he too was wicked. He sinned against the family, against his brother's widow, and against God, and God killed him. Well, at this point, Judah's getting really nervous. He's got one more son, and he's got two strikes already. And he doesn't want to lose his third son. So he goes to Tamar and says, look, he, he's really young. Let's wait till he gets older, and then you can marry him. So Tamar agrees, and then as that son gets older, Judah backs, goes back on his promise. He doesn't fulfill it. And Tamar realizes this, that, that he's not fulfilling his promise. You almost begin to wonder, is this a family character trait? And so when she realizes that her father-in-law had not kept his promise, her father-in-law is going to another area to shear the sheep, and so she goes there and disguises herself as a temple prostitute and sits in a location where Judah will notice her he doesn't recognize that it's his daughter-in-law and he requests to be with her and then she becomes pregnant. When word comes out that she's pregnant, she's a widow, Judah wants her to be killed. And then she proves by the things that he had given her that he is the father of those children. And at that time, he declares that she is more righteous than he is. Now, righteousness is not the word that would come to my mind in any part of that story. But what we see is that where the line of Judah comes. The second one that's mentioned is Rahab. Rahab was a pagan woman who was a prostitute. 
So while Tamar pretended to be a prostitute, Rahab really was. We read her story in Joshua chapter 2 and and chapter 6. And she's mentioned three times in the New Testament. This is the only time that Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament that does not mention her former occupation. I mean, this is a woman who lived in a wicked city, was involved with wicked men, and made a livelihood with consensual evil. This is not the kind of girl you want to bring home for Christmas. This is not somebody you really want to highlight in your lineage. And, and, and I mean, talk about a awkward family conversation around the dinner table. Now, who is this? Where is she from? And, and, and it's like, don't ask questions. But what she did was she trusted the God of Israel. And now, when we come to Matthew 1, we find out that she's in the Messianic line. We don't read that in the Old Testament. We read the story in Joshua. We read of what Rahab did, how she protected the spies, how God saved her when the rest of the city was killed. But she is, and now we find out she's in the line of the Messiah. What an amazing statement that, that she, is, she is the mother of Boaz. And, and he's the husband of the next woman that's mentioned in this passage, and that's Ruth. Ruth was a disenfranchised woman with an really indecent heritage. Now, well, well, she was a woman of character and, and, and wonderful morals, it would appear from what we read in Scripture. She didn't come from a very nice family background. She didn't grow up in a nice Christian home and go to a Christian school and learn her verses in a Wana club. She was a Moabitess. The Moabites were a nation of people that came into existence because of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. When they thought, his daughters thought, everything's been destroyed, they got, it, got Lot drunk, had relations with him, and that's where the Moabites came from. This was a nation that was cursed by God and not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations, according to Deuteronomy 23. In fact, these were people that actively tried to destroy the Israelites. They worked aggressively to get God to judge them. And now Ruth comes into the line of Jesus by marrying Boaz. And when you read the story of Ruth in the book in the Old Testament that bears her name, you you find Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, the living illustration of the work of the Messiah for his people that he is their redeemer. And so we find these three women, and then the fourth one is Bathsheba, and she was an adulterous woman, and she's not even named. The fourth woman, we actually are forced to deal with the whole sordid affair because the way it's written is she was the wife of Uriah. And and, and we see in this passage that this is not really what we would want to bring out. You know, if you're going to include one of David's wives, how about Abigail? I mean, this was a woman that was a noble woman, and and she had a, a jerk for a husband. Her husband was horrible, and God killed him. And then Abigail marries David. Well, how about use her? No, it's Bathsheba. And we know her because of her husband, who was one of David's mighty men. And after David commits adultery with Bathsheba, then David has him killed. Talk about a dysfunctional home. I mean, when you hear these stories, 
I mean, these did not begin in in our century. This was not a straight family tree growing nice and tall. There are a lot of twists and turns and knots. Why, Why mention these women at all? Why not mention Sarah or Rachel and their desire for our children? I love how one commentator put it. By mentioning these women, it's like a holy irregularity preparing us for the virgin birth to see the supernatural coming of Christ. Because what we need to understand is Christ's lineage invites sinners to come to him. When we read these names, when we understand a little bit of the background of their stories, what we find is these are people with problems. These, these are women with a past. There are men in this line that were, were evil men. These messed up families didn't begin with modern times. Yet Jesus identifies himself with sinners. It's not obscured, it's brought to the forefront. So what can we learn from this? Well, I think by personal applications, number one, Christ's coming identifies with sinners and reconciles them to God. Jesus had sinners in his lineage, bad sinners, messed up people, those that we would kind of say, yeah, let's not talk about them. Let's wordsmith this in our family tree and what we're sharing. But understanding Christ, Jesus came into this world to save sinners. There's no one here that has done something that God cannot save you. Our problem is we tend to think it's based on what I do. Well, if I can do a little bit more, I'll get closer to God and maybe my good works will get me up there. No, it's not that. The question is, are you willing to bow down? Are you willing to humble yourself enough to come to Him? He humbled Himself identifying with wicked individuals. He took the form of a servant. He paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin. All of our sin, past, present, and future, but we have to come to him in humbleness. We don't come on our terms. We come saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One of of my granddaughters, she'll come to me and she'll ask me to pick her up and I'll pick her up and then after a while she'll say, okay, she wants to get down and I'll I'll tease her and I'll put her down but I'll keep her feet just off the ground. i say, you're not tall enough to reach the ground yet. You, You can't go down yet. You're not tall enough. And we laugh because we know tall is going up but folks, sometimes the reason people don't come to Christ is they won't go low enough. Will you humble yourself and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Call out to him, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we start saying, well, I think I'm several steps up and I don't really need to be that way because I'm not as bad as some of those people. I mean, some of those in this line, then folks, we don't come on God's terms or on on our terms. We have to come on God's terms. And understanding that he came to reconcile sinners, God and sinners reconciled. That's what Jesus does. Secondly, God's grace overcomes your past. Isn't it interesting that God didn't bury the past of these people? He said, okay, let's, let's not mention Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and Uriah. It's like, no. Because they are trophies of God's grace. You don't have to live in fear. I mentioned Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament here where it doesn't mention her past. And then in in Hebrews 11, verse 31, and James chapter 2, verse 25, and in those two passages, while it mentions her former occupation, what it focuses on is her faith. She's in the lineage. She's on, in in Hebrews 11, that, that hall of faith heroes. 
Because what we understand is, number three, God's grace is displayed in a changed life. And Rahab's life advertised God's grace. James 2.25 states that her works displayed her faith. Folks, we are all trophies of God's grace. So the question is, are we living in obedience to Him? We sing glory to God in the highest. Do we live for His glory here? Because a faith that doesn't change our lives is not a faith that's going to save our souls. Rahab's faith changed her. So while that is identifying her past, it's not who we think of her as. We think of her as being in the lineage of David the King and Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. That faith will change us when we have truly trusted Christ. The fourth thing is that God's control over the past inspires us. That we can trust Him in the present. This genealogy is a record of God's divine preservation. God can judge a wicked king, declaring none of his seed will sit on the throne and still fulfill the promises made to David. And when we understand that, we recognize, I can trust him. But folks, I would encourage you when you read genealogies as well to realize the brevity of life. And the fifth thing that we see is that when physical life ends, each person will answer to Christ. One of the things you find with, and especially when you read in the Old Testament, in Genesis 5, you find, and he died. Every one of these people has died. The one final lesson we should learn is from these genealogies is the certainty of death and the brevity of life. That if Christ Jesus does not return, life is short. And we will all answer to him. Because he is the Messiah, the Christ. That every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And folks, it's not, say, well, I'm not as bad as other sinners. Now, I think the worst sinners in hell are, are not the prostitutes and the adulteresses but it, that never heard the gospel. It's those who heard message after message and rejected Jesus. How dangerous is that when we understand that he humbled himself and came for us? The ancestry of Jesus Christ displays God's absolute control and his amazing grace. Have you trusted him? These are verses we often just kind of skim over. But God is identifying Jesus Christ with sinners to save sinners. Is he your savior this morning? Let's pray together.